The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized. And there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench. Hey everyone, it's Megan. Thank you so much for tuning in to Reclaim the Bench, for all of your support over the last few weeks, for those of you who've told us you're sharing it with your friends and neighbors and coworkers. We really appreciate that and are hoping to continue to build a network of people who are interested in changing the world of science and medicine for the better. We're so grateful to you for helping to create that network. Currently, as I'm recording this, it is the evening of November 7th, 2020. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were declared the next president and vice president of the United States. I'm still in a little bit of disbelief. I said to my husband today, I've never felt so viscerally a weight being lifted off my shoulders. There is still so much work for all of us to do to make our country better, but I think that we're taking a step in the right direction, and I am so beyond thrilled to see a woman of color in the White House. And so, with both the political situation as well as our work constraints for our graduate programs, Jamal and I have been quite busy over the last few weeks. And we've also been working on a bunch of different things for the podcast. We've been working on recording some different interviews. We are securing a new space to record our audio so that it's much higher quality. And that is still a work in progress, but we're very excited about that. All of that together has meant that we haven't had time to record an episode for this week. So we decided to release the audio from our very first interview with Dr. Lisa Nicholas, a gynecologist whose expertise we used for our very first episode on James Marion Sims. And she had a lot of interesting things to say about the health of women of color in the United States from that time period all the way to today. And when we caught her, took the time to duck into a conference room and in her scrubs answered some of our pressing questions about women's health and specifically the health of women of color in the United States. As it was our very first interview, we still had a few kinks to work out. Uh, my puppy barked in the background at a couple points and we were still learning how to conduct an interview over Zoom. But regardless, we thought that Dr. Nicholas's expertise was very informative and educational and enjoyable. So we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. And look out next week for an interview with the author 
Harriet Washington, who wrote the book Medical Apartheid, among many other titles in medical ethics. All right, we will see you soon. We got a lot coming, so we're very excited to share that with you soon. Thanks, as always, for supporting us. Enjoy. Um, so my name is Jamal Williams. I'm from Buffalo, New York. Um, I first met you a couple years ago when you came to the Ignite and Hope conference and you gave a wonderful talk. Um, I'm a student in this building, a, a fourth year PhD student in a neuroscience program. And um, Megan and I started this podcast or are starting this podcast as sort of um, a way to give a voice to those that have continuously been marginalized in science and um, throughout history that hasn't that haven't had their fair share of credit for biomedical discovery. So this is sort of our call to action in creating this podcast and using our platform as scientists. Wanna go, Megan? Yeah, I, I'm super sorry about the barking. We actually just got a puppy and my husband is also in a meeting right now. So it's a little bit crazy, but um, yeah. So I'm Megan Conroe Graham and I am a um, second year PhD student, but I'm in the MD PhD program. So this is actually my fourth year at Buffalo. Um, I'm interested in psychiatric disease primarily, but along with Jamal, one of my biggest passions is just um, making healthcare more accessible to everyone and getting more people into the field, um, making it more reflective of our society. So I'm really excited to bring that message to um, a bigger audience and, and to hear from you today. So thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Lisa Nicholas. I'm a native Buffalonian, born and raised there. And uh, I'm a practicing obstetrician gynecologist in Southern California, Los Angeles specifically. And I've had many roads to that this ultimate place I find myself in right now. But currently, I'm a faculty member at UCLA, uh, David Geffen School of Medicine. And I function with direct patient care to all the patients and families that I love. But also, I'm a teacher, professor, and the clerkship chairperson of the uh, third year medical student clinical rotation. So that uh, requires me to really have my hand in all the students that matriculate through the medical school insofar as getting exposure to the practice of obstetrics and gynecology. And currently within the past few weeks, I'm transitioning into a new role uh, within our department. And I'm going to be the vice chairperson of the department with the responsibility of of uh, steering our group and looking at EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So I'm very excited about this new role. And I just have a lot of ideas that I would just love to see propel. And this is feeding right into this. I love this name, Reclaim the Bench, because part of uh, our department, a lot of PhD uh, uh, students and, um, and faculty that are talking about, I think a lot of the things that we're probably going to be approaching upon today. Great. So, so what, um, what made you specialize in um, obstetrics and gynecology? What, what pushed you towards that, that specialty? That's a very good question. I uh, went to medical school with the intent of becoming a pediatrician. I was very uh, impressed and, and really in awe of Dr. Lydia T. Wright. She's kind of uh, an icon in Buffalo as a Black woman pediatrician. 
And I told my mother, I said, I think I want to do that. So I went to medical school. I had that trajectory all the way. Then I got into the clinical rotations uh, for uh, at medical school. And I had this drop. I wasn't really feeling that pediatrics was something I could devote my whole professional career to. So I continued throughout the year and I went into OBGYN rotation. And that was never on my radar screen. But uh, the feelings I had was I was part of taking care of the families, the patients, delivering babies, and really having a good opportunity to do internal medicine, surgery, emergency room, psychiatry. I didn't realize that obstetrics and gynecology and the care of women would enable me to encompass that full spectrum. But I think the most important thing was the mentor that I had, who was the head of the department at that time, is Dr. Kenneth Edelin, and he was a Black man. And he was just so impressive to me in regards to uh, how he was able to manage all of the faculty, residents, and students. And we were very much in a minority at that time. But when I had the chance to present my cases and do things during rounds, he always gave me a platform to be highlighted and placed in a very positive light. I didn't get that experience with the other departments. And I, I'm eternally grateful to him in regards for him seeing in me something I couldn't see in myself. So uh, I attribute a lot of that to Dr. Edelin. Yes. So for people who aren't as familiar with the medical field, um, what does your daily life look like as an OBGYN? Um, or maybe in the past, if you, it sounds like you wear a lot of different hats now, but yeah. in your clinical practice. Yes. Well, you know, I do have somewhat of a structure. I try to maintain a structure. Uh, in my uh, daily schedule. So on uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, I generally devote that to direct patient care in the office, in the ambulatory setting. So I see patients in the clinic and we'll do routine preventive health care maintenance uh, to the routine um, prenatal visits. Uh, we'll do any kind of uh, treatment for abnormal bleeding, abnormal pap smears, you know, any kind of things, uh, contraception, any kind of issues women may want to talk about, I'm able to handle in the uh, outpatient ambulatory setting. On Mondays and Wednesdays are my more fluid days. I may be in the hospital uh, doing surgeries or uh, in the labor and delivery unit delivering babies. And it's almost like a watch night type thing. You just wait around and wait till something happens. And then on uh, Thursday afternoons and Friday afternoons, and sometimes on Mondays, I devote to uh, administrative uh, tasks, doing things with meeting in the medical students and trying to help to develop the curriculum uh, that they're, I'm responsible for managing for the students and just meeting and doing other kind of administrative tasks as well as working with my research team, so. Wow. So um, maybe you can help us uh, answer some questions, some technical questions. Um, that we came up with in preparing for um, our episode that will be released on a podcast about J. Miriam Sims, the so-called father of gynecology. Yes. Uh, so Sims is known for innovations in the treatment of vesicovaginal fistulas. Um, can you describe what that is and are they common now or is this something that we've sort of been able to overcome since his time of practicing? Right, right. That, that's a very good question. And, you know, Sims was uh, been referred to as the father of gynecology. He was always placed in complete awe in regards to the things that he had done 
that now we know were rather atrocious. But nonetheless, he uh, uh, vesical vaginal fistula is an abnormal communication between the bladder and the vagina. And it's relatively uncommon here in the United States. And when we do find that clinically evident, it's usually after a hysterectomy. But then there's a, a vesical vaginal fistula that can occur as a result of what we call obstructed labor. Now, what is obstructed labor? That means a woman may go into labor for a very long time and really not have the kind of things that we can offer to help her along the path. In other words, if a woman is in labor for a long time and the baby's too big for her or the labor pattern is not functional enough to really effectively enable her to deliver the baby uh, in, in a proper window of time, things can happen to the tissue around where the baby's head is really smashing during the labor process. And as a result of that constant movement and pressure, there may be uh, 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 imperfections that occur with those communications and render a woman more susceptible to developing little holes and passageways between the bladder and the vagina. Now we see that in, in other countries and particularly that was one of the reasons why I've been going to Uganda, Africa, is to address the issue of, of obstetric fistula. And when we go there as our team, our clinical team, we do the operative procedures to correct uh, uh, these maladies. Now, are those procedures um, the same type of procedures that um, SIMS is credited with innovating or has those uh, procedures evolved over time? I believe that the procedures have evolved over the time, but Sims was a person that I apparently, from my understanding, was the one uh, originally attempting to tackle the problem, really being overtly aggressive in trying to do the reparative uh, surgery to correct uh, these areas, these communications. And from my reading was he would take women and not anesthetize them and uh, perform multiple procedures on them, not just one, multiple procedures until the time that you know, the patient could not even withstand any more uh, of, the, of the trauma that had occurred from the surgical intervention. Wow. So when you, um, when you see these patients, so we know how horrible the procedures that he was using were, like, very painful. Do, does the discomfort or the humiliation um, that they experience from these fistulas, do you think that warrants that kind of treatment? It's hard for me to understand how someone could unabashedly afflict pain on another human being for the sake of trying to do something good. I mean, that's a concept that I have a very difficult time wrapping my arms around. So if we could take ourselves back in time, apparently he was doing these things. The woman would be writhing in pain, screaming and crying, and he just continued to pursue with tenacity what he felt he needed to do. So if we want to call ourselves a civilized society, people with compassion and empathy and caring for other human beings, I do not see how that could be a situation where the ends would justify the means. That was our next question, and um, we we would agree with that that the ends don't justify the means. Actually, during our research, um, one of the um, clinics that he was associated with 
where he um, studied as an undergrad under um, doing an internship under a physician there in South Carolina, um, they had boasted about their university being one of the premier Southern uh, medical schools because they had um, available access to enslaved individuals to use as test subjects. And um, again, uh, uh, some of his defenders that still defend him up until a recent publication in 2019 uh, feel that he was just a product of his time and that his work sort of outweighs the, the wrong that he does, that he did. No, I respectfully and beg to differ on that because, you know, human beings are to be regarded with respect and, and consideration and compassion. And obviously none of those things were apparent. And see, we can continue to look at, at chapters in history where people have been treated like that. This is part of our American narrative. But the German people are dealing with the same thing in regards to what happened during the Holocaust because there were scientists and physicians doing the same things to the Jewish people there. And then if you go throughout time in various countries, you'll see this ugly story that keeps creating itself in regards to people utilizing this power mechanism to really uh, justify how they treat other individuals to achieve a certain gain. Um, Even in today's society, when we're thinking about what's happening with the COVID, one might beg to argue that forcing children and teachers to go in there in this environment without the proper protection is about forming a massive experiment. And let's see what happens. Let's see who falls out and who may be able to survive. That's a really good point. I haven't heard it phrased like that, but my mom and my mother-in-law are both teachers and Obviously, I know a lot of kids, and it's just pretty terrifying knowing we're just throwing them all out there. And that's right, because we don't know. We don't yeah. know. So yeah. you know, it's a situation where we'll take the most vulnerable mm-hmm. individuals, and then we'll place them in categories, and we'll we'll be about the business of conducting the massive experiment. So, um, in terms of these kinds of experiments, the way that enslaved people were treated and specifically women who face, well, um, women of color face extra issues in navigating um, the US healthcare system. How does that reflect today on um, healthcare for all sorts of women of color? Um, Are there like repercussions of these effects of slavery? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's this notion that black women are impervious to pain. In other words, we have a, a, a greater endurance to be able to uh, manage absolute pain uh, from a physiologic standpoint. I think that black women have been uh, forced to endure a lot of things throughout time that has enabled us to have, I think, a tremendous resilience to a lot of things. But we should not separate resilience to certain aspects of societal injustices with a person's physiologic mechanisms with regards to how they respond to pain. Those two cannot be intertwined. 
because we all bleed the same blood. We all can get the same infections. We all can develop the same complications from surgery. And, you know, basically we have all of those similar feelings and ultimate outcomes if, if they are neglected. And uh, that was one of the uh, major uh, uh, issues related to, you know, Judge Hatchett's uh, daughter-in-law. In regards to, I'm sure in your research, did you run across the situation, Kira, and how she was uh, in uh, labor and had a cesarean section at Cedars, and in the in recovery room, she had um, apparently been showing some blood in her urine in the catheter, and her husband had recognized that, and she was complaining of just unusual pain, and she kept complaining of pain, and nobody really felt it was anything that was different than just normal post-operative pain. So to make a long story short, you know, once they recognized there was something wrong, there was a complication, they rushed her to the operating room and unfortunately they were not able to save her. Well, was this the same um, woman who, or is this a different case, um, who had graduate degrees, PhDs that worked for the CDC, a black woman, and she was complaining to the doctors after she had gave birth and um, they didn't really adhere to her, her problems and she passed away also. I'm, I'm sad to say this is a different case. Wow. Yes. And, and there's a long litany of cases. Yeah. I mean, um, we looked at some of the data that the CDC reports, I'm just going to read off of some notes that I had. It says the, from a 2016 or study, I believe this was from, um, the CDC reports that pregnancy-related mortality ratio is four to five times higher in Black and American Indian Alaska Native women when compared to white women. Um, I've oftentimes heard that um, that Black women's health and reproductive health is worse in the United States or as bad in the United States as it is in some uh, third world countries. Um, how did we get here? How, how did we allow one... Um, social group to fall so far behind four to five times higher um, related deaths, pregnancy related deaths than those of white women? Well, Jamal, I mean, you know, you just reiterated a just very sobering statistic. And, you know, these are the issues I've more or less dedicated my professional career to try to address and correct. But at the core of all of this is something that we all have to face is the fact that we are enduring the result of 400 years post-slavery and uh, racial uh, discrimination and injustice. And until we can really face those issues head on, not just one group, the four of us here as part of this, this, this Zoom, but it really has to be something that everybody appreciates and understands uh, is an American problem. It's not just a problem that's indigenous to black women isn't or uh, Native American women is it's an American problem, and uh, our healthcare system has so many tremendous vulnerabilities uh, that became immediately unveiled with this coronavirus uh, debacle. But you know, it's it's we've got we're going to have to take a look at how we deliver care for everybody. We're going to have to take a hard look at that, and it can't be a situation where it's it's constantly deemed as a, a profitable entity to deliver health care uh, to everyone. It should not be regarded as uh, 
a privilege. It should be a right. And that's what separates us as an industrialized nation to other nations such as uh, such as ours, such as Canada and other European countries. They don't they don't have these issues. They may have issues. But they don't have this issue. All right. Because everybody has issues. Right. So uh, uh, that's my take on it. How did we get there? I, I think it's a, a post post slavery phenomena and the strides that we've been able to make have had periodic setbacks. And I'm hoping that the era that we're in right now is going to enable us to be jettisoned to a, a forward thrust in regards to recognizing, you know, how we need to be about the business of making corrections. Uh, Megan, before you ask your next question, I wanted to just piggyback off of the statements that you made. And as your role in administration, um, aside from your role as a practitioner, um, have you focused on anything specifically um, in uh, at UCLA um, uh, for the curriculum and um, to deal with the, such disparities and um, like racial sensitivity and things like things of that matter? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I have. Actually, uh, I have been developing a specific module in our curriculum that focuses on reproductive justice. And what we do during that module is uh, deal with certain issues related to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, these cases that we just talked about, uh, uh, appreciating how as uh, physician leaders, we have to be uh, champions for women and champions for the vulnerable and really exercise our important role in advocacy. So I uh, have incorporated uh, a number of pretty exciting uh, workshops uh, with the assistance of uh, my medical students. I mean, I'm not taking credit of all with this. The medical students have come to me and the difference is I've listened. I've listened to what they say. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's launch. And I'm really excited about it. And, you know, maybe I can talk to some people at uh, University of Buffalo and see if we can share, you know, what we're doing on some of these modules through Zoom. And what we do is we discuss these very, very complex and hard uh, discussions. And we break up in small breakout sessions and then we get feedback. And of course, some of the students are very quiet and they're kind of alarmed about all of this, but some are really uh, feeling very happy. They're having uh, the opportunity to really talk about some of these things. We've talked about the issues with the families that are here at the border and what's going on with the uh, imprisonment of these people in cages and these kind of issues. And we deal with issues of uh, mask incarceration and how women are being forced to have babies and in prison. And, and it just, it, there's a, a large number of things that we, we deal with in, in that. And then right here in the, our institution, we're trying to grapple with some of the thoughts and feelings the students have in regards to unfair treatment, you know, by some of the faculty members and not really being mentored in regards to some of their uh, projects, uh, graduate students not being able to uh, enable themselves to be placed in positions for uh, advancement and, and research and things like that. That's probably more in the realm of what, what you two are doing right now. And hopefully you have, you know, proper mentorship to allow you to achieve your own personal goals, but all of those kind of things we deal with too. I don't know. I'm all over the place. <laughs> I think we are too. I don't know, Jamal, if you told Dr. Nicholas about our other project with the student government, but um, 
Yeah, so that's that the last part of what you said, that is something that we're dealing with too, is just the um, poor mentorship in some cases and all students not feeling like they have the same um, treatment. And so we are trying at Buffalo, actually it, we're doing it, is making a graduate student government to represent our interests to the wider university and um, have more of a seat at the table for decision-making. So. That's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. Keep pushing for that. Yeah. But what did they say in Hamilton? You got to be in the room where it happens. Did, yeah. you, did you say that? And I mean, uh -huh. and that, that's the truth. Yes. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And for so long, you know, under, underrepresented minorities and women have been left out of the room where it happens. And as a result, you know, we have been suffering going through these systems. Yeah, and it's unfortunate, though, that um, Megan and I both talked about this, that if maybe if we didn't feel that we were top students, that we wouldn't have the voice or the platform to do various things um, that we do. Because upon coming in to university, I know there were students who more senior than me, but um, they had kind of been struggling through different difficult curriculum and programming and felt that they didn't have a voice to speak up about mistreatment. And that's unfortunate. Um, and so maybe we have some sort of advantage, but it shouldn't be that way. Like everyone should have a voice. And that's essentially why we're creating this uh, affiliated organization um, where we ask for a seat at the table for um, decisions made about curriculum, decisions made about uh, punishing faculty uh, for the, um, sort of horrendous acts that has been that has happened even here. Um, we ask for a seat at the table for admissions processes to have student representatives um, available um, and really just a seat at the table overall to try to ensure that um, more URM faculty and students are being recruited to the university. Right, right. You know, the faculty members, you know, have to uh, have accountability. They have accountability, you know, for the things they say, the things they do, and how they treat, you know, the students and their other their other peers, the other faculty members. So I think this is a problem that's probably pervasive all over the country. And the power of this moment in time is that we're really talking about it in such a way that I think people are starting to listen a little bit. You know, they're starting to to take a look and say, you know, what really is going on here? And what do, we're talking about, how does that relate to this issue with George Floyd? How, how can we connect these dots and really see how they're, they're connect? They connect very, very intimately. They really do. So. So I have a question for you, maybe on a little bit more of a personal level. Um, as a physician and also as a black woman, how do you deal with, I mean, you're, you're part of this demographic that we're talking about that has these really poor health outcomes. So how do you deal with working to combat this while also maintaining your own mental health, I guess? <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel very fortunate and uh, very blessed. You know, I have a lot of very positive, strong support systems, and I've had, you know, my own set of mentors that have helped to uh, enable me to, to be where I am right now. And uh, my parents have been phenomenal. And my brother, George, whom you may know, is he, he and I are very, very close. And, uh, you know, we feed off each other. 
in regards to what we do. I just put Reverend two and two six. together. Huh? <laughs> I just put two and two together. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> we, we, we both feel we're part of a movement that we're trying to, I'm on the West Coast, he's on the East Coast. So that that's what we do. And then, you know, I, I have two beautiful children and my daughter, Lindsay, uh, she just finished her fellowship in neurosurgery. Wow. And uh, she's quite outstanding in her own right. And then my son, Jared, he uh, finished his master's in business. And actually, he's been doing some semi-professional basketball. So he's trying to complete that aspiration in regards to his professional career pursuits. And then, you know, I'm waiting to see what else he may want to do as it relates to that. You know, so. So, I, well, you know, we I have support systems that help me to stay focused. But, you know, we all want to be mindful of our own health and do the things we need to do uh, to eat healthy, get our exercise, engage in, you know, socialization with people that we love and try to put aside, you know, our work situation and, you know, maintaining the importance of our own inner spirituality and, and sense of oneness with a higher power. I have a um, sort of technical question that I don't entirely understand, but I came um, I came across in an article from ProRepublica. Um, it's called weathering. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you explain if you know if you've heard of this term? Can you explain what that term is? Have you come across this? I I've heard about it, but I don't think I can expound upon that. But if I, I if you give me a chance to look into it, I will probably be able to. But I've I've read about that. I asked myself the same question: What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. We we came across it in that article, um, right, Megan? Do you remember yeah. uh, any more of the context that was there? A little bit. I, it was. Um, there have been studies done that um, the effects of discrimination and um, also childhood trauma uh, actually cause decreased cellular health and specifically shortened telomeres and the chromosome. Um, oh, so, so this is the neurologic terminology. Genetic, I guess. Yeah. Um, so just on the cellular level across the body. Okay. okay. Um, well, I'll look that up. I'll look that mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I think it came sort of out of like the ACEs studies on um, adverse childhood experiences uh, which we should talk about in the future, Jamal. I don't know if you know about that, but um, that's also important. Wow. Yeah, so it's literally on the cellular level, these effects of discrimination are really um, affect people's health in the long term. Right, right. Well, uh, once again, that's uh, the hypothesis about preterm birth uh, with the predilection for that to be more prevalent in uh, African-American women and it's because of the uh, stressors that occur that are antithetic to, you know, the white counterparts and how the effects of stress can, you know, cause certain adaptations that could interfere with certain mechanisms that may spearhead uh, the onset of labor. Mm-hmm. Megan, you, you brought up something uh, to me one time during our morning briefings that I didn't I hadn't really uh, heard about. Uh, remember, you were talking about um, like forced um, sterilization oh. or something like that. Yeah, like woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the forced sterilization um, movement, I guess, in the 1900s. Um, yes. 
But actually, even looking into it, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, a famous civil rights activist, apparently this happened to her just in like the uh, maybe the 60s where she was um, uh, there was I don't know the technical terms, but it was a surgery that was performed on her without her consent where she wasn't able to have children um, anymore. Is this a a, a real issue that uh, uh, black women are um, being pushed in a direction to not bear more children or um, to not really understand the procedures and surgeries that may um, um, force them to not be able to have children in the future? Yes, this, this is a, that's a real, that's a real issue. That's a real historical uh, backdrop to what has happened in, in, in their inner cities and actually been intimately uh, associated with the, Medicaid and other public assistance uh, financing and how there seems to be just a greater incidence of not only tubal ligations or tubal sterilizations, but hysterectomies, which once again would render yeah. a woman uh, barren and not able to have children. Um, there had been a movement. I don't know if you've heard about the Shockley movement and other things out here on the West Coast that kind of goes to the proponent that, you know, it, uh, women would be better off you know, not having, you know, multiple families and propagation. And um, that's part of the module that we talk about in our reproductive justice uh, curriculum, those issues about forced uh, sterilization or sterilization without consent. Yeah. Yeah, the the Shockley movement, um, I just shared one of the interviews uh, um that he had a debate that he had with uh, Francis uh, uh, Wellesling, Dr. Wellesling. But anyway, yeah, he was, um, this was just in the seventies where, you know, he was a Stanford professor That's talking right. about this movement of dysgenics That's um, right. with the assumption that um, blacks were inferior intellectually. And he was trying to incentivize blacks to um, become sterilized. And, That's right. You know, he was pushing us around as fact, and he had a platform. Uh, yes. He won a Nobel Prize in physics. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but yes. that same rhetoric, I remember watching a debate when Mitt Romney was running against um, Barack Obama, and um, he was talking about um, sort of low income um, people not shouldn't be able to have kids uh, mm-hmm. if they living off the system. That's right. And, um, because they don't pay into the system enough. Yes. And from my own personal experience, I have been in the room with black women where doctors have told them they should not have any more kids. Um, and simply because of the number of kids that they have, but not yes. necessarily because of any biological uh, meaning. Is that a doctor's place to tell um, a, a patient if there's no medical underpinnings that they shouldn't have kids anymore? No, absolutely not, Jamal. You know that's not the doctor's place. But this has been the uh, element of permissiveness that has been perpetrated in the medical community and unfortunately within the community that I practice of gynecology. Mm. Because uh, not only is that a messaging that would go to uh, Black women, but also uh, Latina, Latina X women, same thing that may have had four, five, six children, and the next thing they want to do is just sterilize them or snip the tubes. And I mean, and thinking that's something funny mm. and uh, forcing women, 
But, you know, the conversation could even continue insofar as assuring that women can exercise their right to choose. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call reproductive justice. Uh, Understanding a woman uh, may be in a situation where she should have an equal right to not have a baby as have a baby. And I mean, that continues to be another uh, very heated and polarizing debate that we find ourselves into. And in certain parts of our country, women are not even enabled to have that choice because that choice may not be available. It's been effectively eliminated by not having providers of care available to properly take care of them. Megan, do you have anything else? Yeah, I mean, one... um... One thing that we are really interested in in having this podcast is just inspiring um, future generations of people to become physicians and scientists and to get into the field. Um, So what advice do you have for those people who maybe didn't grow up with any doctors in their family or um, think that they don't they don't have the mentorship for science or or um, don't think that they're the right ones for it. What advice do you have for those people? Well, if you have a inner desire uh, to explore, to learn, to uh, go into places that many people may not have uh, the ability to go, establish relationships, uh, caring for individuals, helping to heal individuals, uh, if you are a people person or if you're a person that, that likes to see things happen in the lab, you know, whatever excites you, if you go into the field of medicine, that opportunity is available to you. And um, mentorship is very, very important. And I believe that physicians, uh, people in our profession uh, have a responsibility and a role to reach out and give back. I strongly believe in that. And that's part of the messaging I give to my students and saying, you know, your role, once we have you uh, recite this Hippocratic Oath, is, is to place yourself in the proper light to be a true leader, a true voice of reason and truth. And there's a lot of places where people are going to be looking to you to be that voice of reason and truth. And you should have the courage to be that at all times. And, uh, you can't sit in the back and and just fold your hands like that and watch. You know, you have to you have to be in the game, and if and or get into the game. I mean, if we're really going to make a difference, you know, I think Dr. Fauci, he's my new hero. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's a really he's a very because he's been around for a while. Because I remember all of his uh, advocacy in the '80s with HIV, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so I think he understands a lot and hopefully people will continue to try to listen to him as we move forward. I hope so too. <laughs> Me too. Well, um, we appreciate you spending time with us. I know uh, you have a busy schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if there's anything that we can do, uh, I know we're all the way here on the East coast or anything that we can do in our platform. Um, please let us know. Um, because I think we're fighting the same fight. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm just excited 
uh, that you're doing this. And I just can't wait to, to be able to tune in on your podcast. We're going to put them on Apple. What are you going to do? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, all of, uh, all of the platforms. So, yeah. But I, I love that name, Reclaim the Bench. That, that, that that's what She came up with that. She's the oh, no, that was good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I really like the word reclaim. I yeah. just felt that it fit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. the... Um, yeah. Yeah. The reproductive justice um, modules that you were talking about. I would love to hear more about that, too. Like, if you ever... Um, are able to. I think UB definitely needs some of that in our curriculum. So, yeah, yeah, because mm-hmm. people need to be educated. Yeah, there's, there's things that have been purposely eliminated from from our history books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think if the information were made available to pe- people, the truth, perhaps we wouldn't have some of these misunderstandings and lack of uh, cohesiveness and ability to connect. Yeah, because you know, that that's the first step of understanding. It's just, you know, having a, a sense of history of what's transpired before us. That, that's so right. Even um, one of the spokespeople for Pearson came, had to come out and um, uh, apologize for some of the information that was still in um, their textbooks to, um, recently about um, certain classes of people. And even I remember I, I went to the Uville College for my undergraduate, which was like a healthcare school, and it's like a huge nursing school. And in one of the nursing textbooks, just when I was an undergraduate, maybe five years ago, there was a section in like community health saying that when you schedule appointments for black people, make sure you do it uh, 15 minutes uh, before uh, that you want them there because they'll be later. Something I'm I'm paraphrasing. Yes, this was just a few years ago in a nursing textbook that they were using at the Uvo College. So it's this mindset is still being taught to our um, our uh, healthcare providers right now. Learning the uncomfortable f- history. I mean, we should not be coddling our future providers. We need to be uncomfortable and That's exposed right. to this. You're right, Megan. Let's. We, we got to have that uncomfortable conversation. Mm-hmm. So that that's going to be my opening line when I you know start talking about you know moving us forward in our department. We're we're going to have some hard conversations, <laughs> but I said, but guess what? That's all right. It'll be safe because we're all going to be working together. All right. mm-hmm. That's great. I love that. So, so please uh, stay in contact with us and send over anyone you think may be interested in allowing us to do an interview with them, and we hope to talk to you in the oh, future again. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, and thank you. Uh, uh, let's see, Prakatas Patel. Jay. Jay. Yeah, Jay. Hi, Jay. Thank you. Other. All righty. There he is. <laughs> all righty. So I'm signing. All right. All right. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Bye. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. 
Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Reclaim the Bench. Also, stop by ReclaimTheBench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next. And if you'd like to further support our podcast, you can donate through our website. Funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering you content. 